Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 67 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff. I hope our time together helps you lead like never before. And hey, if you're listening to this in real time, Merry Christmas, Advance Merry Christmas. I hope your Christmas services, if you're part of a local church, are going to be amazing. I really do. And as we hone in not only on Christmas, but the very end of 2015, uh, I've got sort of a trilogy together for you, starting last week, and then again today, and then again next week, that's going to help you hopefully have a better 2016. So last week in episode 66, Wayne Cordova gave you all kinds of like mostly free tech hacks and productivity hacks that I think are going to make a big difference as you try to get a little more efficient and free up more time for like leadership and people and family and prayer next year. So if you missed that one, you want to go back and listen to it. If not today, then on the Christmas break. And then today, my guest is Chris Brown. A lot of you will know Chris. He is listened to literally by millions of people each week. And he's part of Dave Ramsey's uh, group and does a lot of talking these days with Um, people and church leaders about finances. So Chris has been a pastor himself at Elevation Church and then again in Florida and uh, is now with the Ramsey Group and uh, speaks all over America, all over the world, actually. He has an audience where he helps people with their personal finances. So I got a chance to spend some time with Chris and ask him about why, you know, how are pastors good at personal finances? Where do we struggle with it? So especially here we are right at Christmas, right? It's like, did we go over the budget? Uh, Chris, is going to have some help for you that I hope is going to make 2016 a better year for you. And then next week, we're back with part three of the trilogy, and you're going to hear from Joe Sangle. Joe has been a friend for many, many years, and we're also going to talk about money and a little bit about personal finance, but an awful lot about church finance. And Joe has actually helped our church, Connexus Church, tremendously over the last four or five years, uh, helped run our capital campaign, got us into a brand new building a few months ago. And uh, Joe is just packed with practical advice. And actually, so many of you who listen are bivocational pastors. I actually had a little conversation with Joe because he's got some fascinating concepts on uh, how to maybe supplement your income if you're a struggling pastor. So that is for the end of the year, next Tuesday, uh, December 29th. We're coming out with that episode with Joe. So it's a little bit on time productivity and then personal finance and then church finance and also some help with your career if you're one of those bivocational pastors. Uh, so you don't want to miss it. And the best way to make sure you don't miss anything is to subscribe. And you can do that for free on iTunes, on Stitcher, or on TuneIn Radio. And if you haven't done that, just pause right now and subscribe. It's free. That way this will all be in your inbox and you can go back and you can go forward. I also want to say a number of you have been asking, hey, what happened to the early episodes? I think we actually solved a problem with that was just file size. And so now you should be able to go back and look over all 67 episodes in your browser on whatever app you use. Uh, If you're having problems with that, just let us know. But we think we got it fixed. So this is awesome. We had episodes disappearing for a while. And so we got rid of that, I hope. I hope. And all the episodes are back. So you got the full archive, which makes me really, really happy. So maybe you want to do some year-end listening and catch up on some stuff you missed. You should be able to do that flawlessly. Also want to thank all of you who are leaving reviews, which is great. Uh, We are just almost, as I recorded this, at 300 reviews on the American 
U.S. iTunes store. And there was one that came in that I just I just want to read. Uh, it just so encouraged me. And I read every single one of them. So thank you. But Dave Camp left a review a few weeks ago. And he said, very kindly, in my opinion, this is the best podcast out there on church leadership. But then the next part is what really got me. He says, I am a 31-year-old youth pastor. And this podcast is like getting leadership coaching for free. I'm glad. That's what my goal is, Dave, so I'm glad it feels that way for you. He says, amazing, deep, theologically robust, and applicable content each and every week. Now, this is the really cool part. He says, I am also an adjunct theology professor at a local university, and I've made listening to this podcast part of the course requirements for an intro to youth ministry class that I teach. Grateful for you, Carrie. Hey, Dave, that's really super cool. I never thought when I launched this that it would be used as required listening as part of a seminary course. Hey, and if you're one of the students listening to this, I am so sorry that you have to put up with this, but I really do hope it helps. And for those of us on the other side of seminary, because I did seminary too, I think most of us wished we all had something like this that was this practical along the way. So it's one of the reasons I love doing this. Anyway, that's a little bit about what's out there. And thank you for everybody who leaves ratings and reviews. And now let's jump right into my conversation with Chris Brown. Well, I'm really excited to have Chris Brown on the podcast. If you follow him on social media, you know him as Chris Brown on air. And also, if you follow anything Dave Ramsey does, uh, Chris is speaking at conferences, does a daily radio show, has his own podcast, and just so thrilled to have you with us today. Welcome, Chris. Oh, thank you. I'm honored. Hey, yeah, it's been fun. We've been connecting a little bit via social media and chatting a little bit online, but this is the first time we've almost been in the same place together, right? Well, it feels, thank God for technology. Yeah. Although I was saying last week I was in Nashville and stayed apparently right across the street from where you guys, where you're sitting right now. So, and you didn't come and visit. Yeah. Well, I didn't, you know, you just show up and like, Hey, how are you? I I don't know. I, it was like, we passed by Ramsey solutions on the way to the hotel and I'm like, Oh, that's cool. So you got to visit next time. I will visit next time. That's for sure. Nashville was a lot of fun. So today, Chris, uh, we're going to talk about something that's really close to you uh, and something you speak about daily and also to audiences all over the place. And and that is to help people figure out finances, which is just such a, a perplexing subject. I remember one of the first pieces of advice I got in ministry when I started out, I was 30 years old and there was a guy who had a fair bit of money in our church and it was a real small church at the time. And he just said, Carrie, money, it's a problem. If you have it, it's a problem if you don't. And I've never forgotten that. But your encounter, often when you talk about money, you go right back to the time that you were a kid and you had some uh, a defining moment when you were what, 11 years old? Tell, tell us yeah. a little bit about that and how this became a real passionate subject for you, Chris. Yeah, so my passion for stewardship started when I was 11. I didn't know that word, of course, but right. um, at 11 years old, I was sitting down. It was actually on my birthday, uh, and I was sitting down in a dark, empty, roach-infested apartment. And wow. uh, it was completely silent. It was just me and my mom, and I was staring out the window, and obviously, I was wishing that my birthday looked much differently. Mm. I was hoping for some... I don't know, bounce houses like most kids have and friends over and laughter. But instead, I was replaying the last several years in my mind. And I remember uh, just thinking through the years of discipline, uh, of disappointment and the pain. And I I uh, turned my attention towards the kitchen. I remember this moment where I noticed the kitchen was empty, but my mom was, uh, uh, she was in the kitchen and she just looked, just had no hope. She was just staring off into space. And I remember looking at her face and thinking, 
Uh, there's got to be another way. Something's obviously wrong here. All the violence in the home and multiple father figures going to jail and uh, spending the night sleeping in the backseat of cars and abuse shelters. Like, this is really whacked. As a 11-year-old, I was just thinking, there's got to be another way. And so I didn't know what stewardship was, but I'm like, listen, I, I get it. You need to save. You need to spend less than you make. You need to, you know, get out there and get a good job. Uh, I just knew it. And she was a heroic, you know, single mom working three jobs, trying to do everything she could. But just wasn't making very good decisions. And so that day I remembered that, uh, that you know, when I grow up one day, I'm never going to do that to my family. And, wow. uh, you know, all I had during those days were, um, was a, a was Sony Walkman. I don't know if you remember one of those. Oh, I remember those. Yeah. Was yeah. it the cassette or the CD version? It was, it was before Discman. It was the Walkman. Oh, it was the true Walkman. So <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So that's really what I got raised on. I was raised on listening to Larry Burkett and James Dobson and Charles Stanley. And so I was sitting in this empty room, completely silent. And I just have my Sony Walkman. We couldn't afford tapes, didn't have tapes. Mm. And um, so I just listened to the radio. And that was usually the only thing that came in, came in well. So wow. I was kind of raised on the radio. So and was it, cool was your mom right a Christian? Like, were you introduced to Faith Young? Or is that something you encountered a little bit later in your life? Uh, she was a believer, and yeah. so we'd go to church maybe once or twice a year because she was always working so much. But she, was, she mm -hmm. was a believer that I think maybe had just enough Christ that uh, maybe didn't have the real thing. I don't know. It's just kind yeah. of inoculated a little bit. And those are the hardest people to reach, so I don't really know. I don't. I know she knew of him, and I knew she had this uh, little bit of relationship, but I just don't know how deep it was. Right. So Christianity, I mean, you're listening to Charles Stanley and focus on the family when you're a kid. So obviously, you know, this, this was, uh, you, you were introduced to Christianity at some level at a younger age. Yeah, I was just intrigued by it. I was intrigued by some of the messages. The messages were uh, overcoming anxiety and overcoming rejection and and uh, fear in the you know handling fear in the midst of trials. And so it was more of like the content that was intriguing to me as an eleven year old. I was I was I was I was just drawn to the wisdom. So I was more drawn to that than the music that was on the radio. Okay, now that's fascinating. I didn't know that, Chris. And, you know, just a word of encouragement. A lot of pastors, a lot of church leaders listen to this. And, and to be honest with you, until you just said that right now, it never even occurred to me that there would be some 11-year-old listening to a message that, you know, myself or some other preacher might have preached uh, because he's looking for hope and trying to figure out how to overcome anxiety. That's that's a really encouraging word, and that's one of the amazing things. And one of the, one of the ways I think we first connected was because our podcasts are often positioned often next to each other on the iTunes charts. And so you started reaching out to me and I reached out to you. Um, but you never know where those messages end up, do you, Chris? You really don't. No, not at all. And it's, it's, it's a powerful thought to think that I'm on the other side of the microphone now. And yeah. it just seems very full circle. And uh, it's, a, it's very fulfilling to know that uh, I, I'm possibly being used every day to, to provide that for another 11-year-old. Yeah, very humbling, very humbling. So, were you like going to start a tech startup when you were thirteen, <laughs> or like how did how did the how did the entrepreneurial sort of pastoral journey uh, develop for you from that point from your eleventh birthday? Yeah, so I mean, I went through middle school and high school and college. I have no idea how, um, but I, I did somehow. Yeah, um, and went to college. Found myself at a Christian college, which there's no reason why I should have been in a Christian college at all. Hmm. I just happened to play baseball and the coach there said, Hey, listen, why don't you come play baseball for free? So that was intriguing wow. to me. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Free. Uh, I'll, I'll play. I'll go to college for free. That's awesome. 
And so my first month at college, I accepted Jesus. Uh, it was just amazing. It was like immediately, as soon as I heard the truth, I'm like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And so I accepted Jesus for myself, not just getting the wisdom and how to overcome anxiety and those kind of things, but actually a relationship with Jesus. So mm-hmm. I got that and then um, married my wife, graduated and was doing really well, you know, out of college. Um you know, we both got good jobs. We're living yeah. way below our means. I, mean, I, I grew up on, you know, listening to Larry Burkett on the radio and and folks like Dave Ramsey. And so we made some really good decisions uh, right. out of college. Uh, but then I got a little cocky. And mm. uh, in uh, 2007, I decided I was going to borrow a million dollars. Wow. Uh, That's a lot of money. Homes. I was flipping houses and it was working, but I was doing it with cash. Right. I said, why would you want to flip one at a time when you could do eight at a time? So I went out and borrowed a million dollars, and again, the year was 2007, the recession hit, and I'm oh. sitting on a bunch of vacant properties. And so I paid on those vacant properties for three years, 36 months of paying for these vacant homes, and January of 2011, I hit rock bottom, and mm. I, I went bankrupt. So Wow. So, I, you know, middle school, high school, college had its, you know, uh, had its pro ups and downs, but and then, of course, as an adult, I've had some ups and downs as well. That was so devastating. You know, my wife and I, we went down with her parents to a vacation home in Florida in 2009, just for a week or two away. And I remember um, renting this place. We found it on the equipment. There wasn't Airbnb, but it was like a vacation exchange type thing. And so we got the place, I don't know, for a thousand for the week. And it was a nice high-end condo built in 06. And the guy was from Chicago and we sat there at the end of the dock and he had to give me the keys and that sort of thing. It was just outside of uh, Clearwater. And he said he and his four buddies put their entire life savings into buying some condos in 05, 06, 07. And they were worth a million dollars and now they were worth a quarter million dollars and they couldn't even make the minimum payments and like the end was near. And I've, I've never forgotten that. Like so many people lost so much. In Canada where I am, People lost something, but it wasn't quite as severe. But man, that was that was devastating. So what what was that like for you? I mean, as a Christian, as somebody who listened to all those financial things, take us through the emotions. Because I know that there are listeners right now, leaders who either have been bankrupt or maybe are wondering, hey, is that around the corner for me? T- walk us through that time. Yeah. And the reason why I tell you that story is just because I want you to know where this passion for stewardship comes from. It comes yeah. from this childhood memory of seeing my mom completely lost with hope and saying, I'm never going to do that to my family. And then as an adult, doing the exact same thing to my family. Wow. And I can remember that morning uh, in January of 2011, when I finally filed bankruptcy going into that courthouse. I remember what it felt like. Everyone's all eyes are on me. And I, I've got to look the trustee in the face and say, hey, listen, uh, I can't pay anymore. I, I've got to mm. declare bankruptcy. I remember what that feels like. But the morning of going into the courthouse, I remember looking into my bathroom mirror. And I can remember looking in the mirror and seeing the exact same face that my mom had when I was 11 years old, this, this hopelessness. And it was, it was brutal. And so uh, what I would like to just communicate to folks uh, right now is that, you know, this passion for stewardship doesn't come from a, a condemning spirit of those who right. don't have their act together when it comes to stewardship. I Obviously, my family blew it as a child, and we've blown it as an adult. And so we were doing well, got cocky for one month, and it totally did Really? One bad decision. Yeah, it's seriously. And then since then, we've just kind of been uh, digging back out of the hole. So I just would want folks to realize that when you make a mistake, 
you know, you know, you can dig out of it. Don't don't feel condemned and guilty. You peek at the past, but you focus on the future. Wow. And I mean, that you have in common with Dave Ramsey, too. You know, one of the reasons he's so passionate about money today is because he ended up going bankrupt. Very similar story. Uh, just the numbers are different. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you've um, that was a number of years ago. Now that was back in 2011. And uh, so what's happened since? You've been digging out, and you were a pastor of a church at the time too. You were on church staff when that happened, correct? Yeah, I was. Uh, I worked at uh, Elevation Church in North Carolina. Loved mm-hmm. my time there. Yeah, I was a campus pastor, and then I moved to Miami and uh, was an executive pastor. Uh, down there at Potential Church, and uh, loved my time there. And then uh, resigned in May of 2013 and started consulting and helping coaches all over the country. And then um, January of last year, I joined the Dave Ramsey team to lift up the banner of stewardship all over the country. I've always had this passion for the local church and Mm. always had a, a passion for people and had a passion for stewardship. And so now this is the perfect intersection of all those passions where I get to help people, especially because this idea of stewardship is deeper than just money. I want yeah. to help people with the fact of that we're supposed to, you know, live this life God's way and for His glory. It's not just resources. So, uh, Chris, pastors often have a weird relationship with money. Either we like it too much, which we definitely see in some church circles, or we're afraid of it, or we're afraid to talk about it. But there's often a funk around money. What what have you seen? And I mean, because you do love the church and you've got experience yeah. in the local church. Uh, let's talk about church leaders for a moment. How have you seen sort of what are the typical profiles you see in church leaders from the people who love it too much to the people who are just like, ah, we'll never talk about that ever. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I think, you know, just in general, you know, politics and money, just sore subjects to talk about in general. Right. There's lots of reasons for that too. I mean, a lot of it is because of people's position financially, the huge gap between what they're really experiencing in their life and what you see, uh, Mm. what you perceive. So they might've just bought that nice Range Rover but they don't want you asking any secondary questions about how they got that Range Rover. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. They're driving a car payment. They're not driving yeah, a car. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's a sore subject. And another one I think is there's just a huge stigma out there that pastors and church leaders are bringing up money at all because of some of the things that have happened in church culture in the, in the past, mm-hmm. you know, where you've got folks who have really abused that right to speak into people's life in that area. And so those who have a real clean conscience are scared to even bring it up. But really, we need to be, you know, we need to bring it up. We need to overcome that because we're supposed to be teaching the 360 degree full counsel of God. Mm-hmm. And so we have to bring it up. And then lastly, and this one's hard to hear for our leaders, is a lot of us aren't modeling in this area. Yeah. And it's it's really hard to bring up something that you're not doing well at. I know during my time of that huge mistake and digging out of there, my effectiveness as a pastor just plummeted to, to, mm. to lead people in this area. I couldn't speak with authority. I couldn't speak with... Obviously, I tried to leverage vulnerability. Yeah. But man, my effectiveness and my voice, it didn't carry as much weight because I wasn't living it. Isn't that interesting? How did that manifest itself? Like, did you just find that you wanted to not talk about it anymore? Or when you tried to talk about it, you were pulling your punches? Or, or how, did, how did that play out? Yeah, I mean, it's exactly that. It's exactly you're, you're, you know, you're talking about something and you just find yourself shying away because you can't speak boldly about it. It's like you can't speak boldly about a prayer life if you're not praying. Yep. praying. You can't speak boldly about a devotional life if you're not you know, in your devotions, about journaling. You can't speak boldly about it. Right. And so you can tell a lot by pastors and leaders what they're actually disciplines they are doing, what they're not doing, by what they talk about. Eating healthy. You can't talk about eating healthy if you're not doing it. 
Right. And so this is money's no different. It's not about money. It's about not being, you know, not living out what you're speaking, which there's some great things to that, that pastors want to be authentic. And they, the, the heart is I don't want to talk about something that I'm not I'm not want to preach about something I'm not practicing. But right. at the end of the day, if we're not we're not doing well in an area, we really just need to be vulnerable about it, appropriately vulnerable and uh, tell folks, hey, I'm struggling in this area, too. Let's all get better together. Right. Let's talk about that for a minute, because I'm sure there are leaders. And I mean, we've there have been seasons in my life where money's been tight. My wife and I have not been on the same page about it. And, you know, one of the things for a lot of church leaders, as you know, Chris, is we put a microphone on our face on on a Sunday. You, it's it's one thing to get up there in front of your whole church and go, hey, it's not going well. And that could be on money, that could be in your relationship, that could be with your kids or whatever. But I think in the absence of telling everybody, like I'm not going to tell everybody, people end up telling nobody. Right. So if somebody's listening right now, what would you suggest that they do? Who do they turn to to just go, hey, can we talk for a little bit? We're struggling right now financially. Where, who, who is safe for that sort of thing? Or how would you handle that? Yeah, the, the key is appropriate vulnerability. You know, you yes. want to make sure you're going to the right audience with the right issue. I interviewed Dave Stone in the Southeast Christian uh, a few episodes ago. And he had said something, he made a, he said a story about some, a pastor getting up and saying, I struggle with pornography and, uh, and to his whole congregation. But that's great, the vulnerability, but it's not the right audience because yeah. now you've got every woman in the audience, uh, won't look him in the eye, will avoid him for the next six months, won't talk to him. And, uh, it was vulnerable, but to the wrong audience, that's just yeah. that's more like a, a small group of men. Maybe it's the elders, maybe it's the deacons. Um, maybe it's a group of friends. I don't know what it is, but there's got to be a, an area where you can be appropriate about it. So I think you just got to weigh out that appropriateness. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And just to be clear, that wasn't Dave Stone. That was a story he told you. Just yes. <laughs> don't want to start any rumors here. Thank uh, you for the clarity. Yeah, no, no, no problem. Just in case. I, I had to think twice about that. But, you know, I've had that too, where, you know, I have a great relationship with our elders and they'll often be the first guys if I've got something like, hey, I'm not sure this is 100% or working out. I'll talk to them first. And then my own rule, I'll just see what you think of this is if I can talk about it in the past tense with my congregation, even if it's like last year, then I feel it can be helpful because I think when I'm standing up there and if I've, you know, got some active problem in my life to say, Hey guys, I have a problem. I don't know how to solve. I didn't help anybody. I just freaked everybody out. Uh, I should get help with a counselor. I should get help with a best friend with, with our elders or, or with leadership team or executive team at the church. But I don't necessarily need to go to everyone with that. Is that a general good guideline or like, how would you call it? Yeah, I, I like that. And I think we got to watch the frequency as well. You can't be going up all the time saying how you're, you're not, you're not measuring up every other weekend. Oh so, yeah. You better so you have gotta, some success. Be then start to question your competence and you just got to, you know, you got to be careful. You got to space them yeah. out with some victories Yeah, because uh, you are supposed to be winning and you are supposed to be leading them, which means in, in theory, you're supposed to be out in front of them. So you just got to be careful with that. Yeah, yeah, you sure do. You sure do. That's a really good point. So um, one of the challenges a lot of church leaders face is the church does not have a reputation for paying well. And in many cases, for most leaders, they probably could make a little more money in the marketplace than they can working for a local church. And that leaves them sometimes living on less than otherwise. So any advice for church leaders who are in that situation who just have to live on less? Mm, yeah. Well, first of all, I would love to say, man, pay your pastors well. 
I just want to say that boldly. There's here, enough here. compensation research studies out there for free online from very uh, reputable sources. Uh, there's no reason for you not to be paying your pastor well. And by that, I just want to go one step further and say, even with the marketplace, uh, mm. with the, with the you know s- similar industries, so service providers, relational providers, not like you're not going to try to go up against tech stocks and you know tech companies. Yeah, yeah that's right. But I want to make what Jack industry. Dorsey made. Yeah, yeah. that's probably but not going to fly. Well, I just don't. Yeah. I don't get that at all. So. Okay, so let, let, let's let's stop there for a second yeah. because I mean that is something I didn't I didn't make a lot of money when we started, but one of my sort of songs over the last two decades as a church leader has been, and our elders fully agree, let's pay our team well. Let's yeah. let's make sure you know don't pay them crazy, but let's make sure that people you know this I believe the scripture says you pay people well. I just think that's, you know, err on the side of generosity if you're going to err. Not crazy generosity, but pay them well in in similar things. What would you say to the church board member who's listening to this who says, well, Jesus was poor? Um, how, how do you respond to that? Why, what is, why is it that so many church leaders want to keep their staff broke? And how would you rebut that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to um, under, I don't want to say that I understand the motive behind keeping them broke. I don't know if it's because of fear or because of a budget constraint. I'm not sure mm-hmm. the reason why, but what your top prim- priority needs to be to make sure that you pay the leader well. And I don't see well, like in disproportionately well. Right. I mean, do the research and find out what that is. And if they're only working three quarter time, then pay them three quarter time. They're only paying yes. half time, uh, part time. Don't pay them a full time salary for only working part time. But um, the whole idea that, that Jesus was poor, that's that's not the Bible is very clear. Don't muzzle an ox, and it mm-hmm. says pay your people well. It is clear as day in the scriptures, and we either value the church, the local church, the bride of Christ, God's plan A, or we don't. Uh, the services that we provide to the community on the weekend um, I, I, it drives me nuts when people say I don't I don't want to give to that church because they don't do anything for the community. <laughs> <laughs> what they do on Sunday morning is for the community. Right on. I mean, that is that is a service provided for the community. Of course, you should do more than that. But don't dis, don't um, devalue what happens on Sunday morning, and don't ve- devalue the the uh, what what a what a pastor provides. Yeah. Uh, they should be paid well. That's so a good be, word. I'm very very strong on that one. <laughs> I'm with you on that. And you know, I've had that conversation many times. It's like, what are you guys doing for mission? And my answer is, this is the mission. Like this is like like we live in a community where ninety five percent of the people don't go to church on a Sunday. We are the mission, guys. Like, come on, let's and what let's they're doing do a good is job. Undervaluing the Sunday morning experience is exactly yeah. what they're, and they're not doing it on purpose. They just don't see it as a service being provided. And if you look at Ephesians four twelve about equipping the saints for acts of service, you're doing that on Sunday morning, mm-hmm. and so they're supposed to go out and be the church. So you give an awful lot of advice. I mean, on your radio show slash podcast, uh, on a daily basis, you're hearing from people who call in with their problems. What are some of the common money mistakes you see people making and church leaders making? And I mean, I understand this is so basic, like weight loss. I hired a personal trainer a few years ago. He's like, eat fewer calories than you burn, (laughs) right? It's like, it's so simple. And yet we pay people thousands of dollars so that we can learn how to take care of ourselves when, you know, and I understand spend less money than you make, but like where, where, where are the pitfalls and and why is this such a, a troubling issue for so many? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're bringing this up on a leadership podcast because a lot of times uh, from the platform as church leaders, we model how to steward the 10% 
Right. Uh, we model how to steward uh, maybe even the top 20, 20% uh, for those who are just leading above and beyond. Mm-hmm. But very rarely are we modeling in a very intentional, strategic way how to how to fully steward the 100%. And right. so a lot of times we're asking people to give, but we're not teaching them how. How can they put themselves in a position where they actually can do what we're asking them to do? You know, many people are... He got great intentions, but being intentioned for ministry is is nothing without being positioned for right. ministry. Oh, that's so, good. you know, obviously there's you know, we need to model budgeting. Uh, so whenever you bring attention to your budget process as a leader, that's modeling uh, the budgeting mm-hmm. process. A common mistake is we don't have a plan. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen says, "Where there is no vision, the people perish." Yeah, and that's a lot of times where we're spending our months. The month has absolutely no vision. And so, therefore, the the month, the month just it perishes. Mm-hmm. I think another verse says that people cast off restraint, and that's exactly what happened. You get these impulse situations, and you you know what? I deserve it, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's what happens. And so, you need to have a plan for your month and for your year. Uh, another one would be not saving. Uh, yeah. It's a huge issue, right? Proverbs twenty one twenty says, "And the house of the wise is choice food and oil." And so we've got to make sure that we're modeling saving. And so we can't really talk about them the platform if we only have two weeks of savings for our church. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You've got to have more than that before you ever start talking about it. Or if you don't have any savings as an individual, it's hard to say those things from the platform. You know, the common mistake is, and this is probably the biggest one for church leaders specifically, is they're not even thinking about retirement. Not even a little bit. And so that's why we see so many church leaders lead the church way too long because they don't have another option and they can't stop. So and true. So they go all the way till they die and until the church dies. <laughs> That's right. Need that paycheck. Need that paycheck. Yes, they do. Yep. I'd say the biggest mistake out of, of uh, you know, money mistake for all church folks is not to engage in the church provided matched 401k retirement 403b. Oh, I'm not sure what it is in Canada, but the, mm-hmm. the program that's available they're not matching. I think it's under 20% are engaging in that. Yeah. So that's basically a private funds for retirement that your employer would match. So in our case, it would be an RSP. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it's unbelievable. It's like, why in the world are you not taking advantage of that? And I know the reason why. The reason well, tell why me. is we're all broke. Right. I haven't got the 500 bucks a month to put don't aside. Right. right. We don't have it because we have latte breath. And (laughs) because we're driving a $400 car payment and we have $400 in student loans. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's the same reason why they're not tithing also. Yeah. Investing investing would be another one, obviously not thinking about, you know, their kids, college future. Oh, we're in the middle of that right now. Oh my goodness. Like, you know, I remember when our kids were little, so my kids are 19 and 23 and somebody said, you know, you're going to spend a hundred thousand dollars on your kid's education. I'm like, I don't even own a house. I can't imagine a hundred (laughs) thousand dollars. That was conservative. And I mean, we did some savings over the years, but oh my goodness, like it is, I always thought, Chris, and this is maybe advice to young parents. I just thought, you know, once your kids are out of diapers and they stop eating baby food, they really don't cost any money. No, every year they get more expensive. They yes. just do. And eventually that stops. My oldest son is in his final year of engineering right now. So I think he's off the family payroll next year. So we will be doing a little dance uh, around that one. But hey, it's something we're pleased. I heard somebody else say, you know, tell your kids they're responsible for their education, but you can help. And so, I mean, yeah. our goal has been to get our kids out of university debt free, and it's been a partnership. So we haven't gone into debt to get them through school and they 
they haven't gone into debt to get through school. But as long as they do their part, we'll do our part. If they stop doing their part, we won't do our part anymore. So it's not a free ride. But it's worked out very well in both cases. But like, you are so, so right. Let me ask you a question. And I don't know, this is like, this wasn't in our notes when we were getting ready for this. But I hear conflicting things about how many people walk into retirement with anything beyond like we call old age security or social security. What is the stat that you generally find? Do you know that stat or do you have a sense from just talking to people like, do the majority of people have decent savings that will carry them through their retirement years? Or are most people flat out like if the government doesn't rescue me, I've got nothing. Yeah. The majority of people actually have less than $10,000 saved for retirement. Seriously. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's I think it's over seventy percent of folks have less than ten thousand dollars. Like it's wow. a really big issue. Yeah, and the thing is, is people are just living the here and now. That yeah. just do it. Like just do it. You deserve it. You feel it. I mean, go for it. You just and it's it's what in the world are you doing? I just don't get it at all. And the thing is, is is this is what culture is t- teaching us. Yeah, and we're all trying to keep up. It's an entitlement uh, comparison deal, and everyone's trying to keep up with the Joneses. So. It's, and it's not, the church is not, uh, the church is just as bad. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. as, there's a big, I, I know I caught myself uh, uh, a few years ago and um, I went out and got a really nice car because I was the guy on staff who was going to pick up guests from the airport and I was right. picking up pastors from the airport. No one told me to do that. It was no one's fault but my own, but I went and upgraded a car that, and I, and I could, I could technically afford it. But I should not have bought it. It was only because I felt the pressure that I didn't have a nicer car when I picked up people at the airport. Yeah, you know what? Let, let's talk about that honestly. Because yesterday I picked up Bobby Grunwald from mm-hmm. Life Church, who invented version and like Church yeah. Online and all this stuff at the airport to spend a couple hours interviewing him for a t- show, TV show I do and also for my podcast. And I picked him up at the airport. I'm driving my eight year old Honda Pilot. It was clean. I wax yeah. it. But, you know, it smelled a little bit like winter and I was kind of embarrassed. Like it's got almost half a million kilometers on it. And I thought, well, I'm just going to drive it because, you know, my wife and I will finally trade it in probably next year and get something newer. But that's just pride, isn't it? Isn't that pride? Yeah. And listen, church folks are are no different than, you know, we're human beings. And Mm -hmm. so we struggle with it. And so I'm glad we're talking about it on a leadership podcast because we're not immune to it at all. Yeah. So if you feel bad about your car, just know mine has almost half a million kilometers, which is like 300,000 miles. And it looks nice on the outside, but it's old and the heat doesn't work properly. And I live in Canada. So I think I'm going to go get that fixed to get me through the winter. But there's nothing wrong with that. Is it true? Dave Ramsey once said you need to have a net worth of a million dollars to afford a new car. I think I heard that. That's exactly right. A brand new car. Yeah. Brand new car. 70% of their value in their first four years. Which is crazy, isn't it? It is nuts, isn't it? Yeah. It's just it yeah. is nuts. And the average car payment in America is $486. So if you were wow. to invest that from age 25 to 65, you'd have over $5 million. So we usually say, I hope you like your car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Say that again, just in case people miss that. So yeah, the average car payment is $486 a month. And if you uh-huh. were to take that and invest it into a growth stock mutual fund, like a Roth IRA or, or your 401k, from age 25 to 65, you'd have over $5 million. Wow. Okay. There you go. Done. Yeah. I was looking at used cars because I'm probably going to buy used again, I think. And it's amazing. Like you can get some really nice cars for half off three or four years old. And I bought this one. I bought this one, this Honda Pilot, 18 months old. 
was a $50,000 vehicle in Canada new. It's got leather and everything. I mean, it's a nice car, but I got it for half price because nobody would touch it with 166,000 kilometers. I drove like three hours to buy it and it was the other side of the province. I picked it up and I'm still driving it all these years later. But uh, let me just, this is confession time. I feel like you're my pastor today, Chris. (laughs) But I learned that from my wife who had said all along, we should not buy new cars, but I always bought new cars until we bought a 2000 year 2000 station wagon that was $35,000 brand new and I could afford the payment. But oh my goodness, that was the biggest lemon. It was built by drunk people on a Friday or Monday. I'm convinced. (laughs) I sold it four years later. I got $6,000 for it. And I said, okay, honey, you know what? You're right. We have not bought a new car since. So (laughs) fascinating. Okay. You got me on my little soapbox. I try to tell folks that the, can I afford the payment is the wrong question. The mm. question is, do I want to spend $35,000 for a $20,000 item? Because that's what you're going to spend in interest over those six years or five years. Wow. It just doesn't make sense to spend that much on it. It's just, and we don't want to, we don't want to live life living through the rearview mirror of something we've already bought and pay for something that we've already bought. We want to look through the windshield and, right. have, you know, we want to make sure that we're living a proactive life with cash. Okay, so uh, failure to save. So somebody's really, let's say people are like, yeah, but you you don't understand how busy my life is and the kids are, you know, in activities now and we have music lessons. And so when you're in that web, how do you start to get out of it? Like, what do you need to do, Chris? Yeah, and it sounds so boring, I promise you, but this is the deal, to make sure that you get a budget. Yeah, you've got to get on a budget. A lot of folks have a they have a they monitor their spending after the fact. That's not a budget. A budget is writing down a plan and having that plan ready there and ready. And so when you do that, what you'll realize is how much money you're wasting. It is slipping out of your pockets. And uh, a lot of folks are asking for a raise. Your quickest way to get a raise is to get on a budget. You will notice (laughs) all the money that you're wasting. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know I had those four subscriptions of, of magazines and, and things that I haven't even gone to in forever. Uh, and you just, you know, there's money there that you didn't even know. Hmm. You know, my wife and I also, we, we've had a couple of different financial planners, but we sat down with one in this last year. And he came to our house. I mean, he was a fee for service. He's not trying to sell us, you know, stocks or mutual funds or whatever. We have investments and, you know, I just turned 50. So I'm trying to figure out, okay, what do I need to be? Where do I exactly do I need to be? It was so tremendously helpful because he said, here's exactly how much you need to save every month. Here's exactly how much you need to have for an emergency fund. And then you can do what you want with the rest. And that was just liberating for us. It's like, wow, if this happens and these are the assumptions and this is how much we're going to need, it actually is very freeing. Yeah, my wife and I had that uh, debate for years. She wanted a budget for a three or three or four years and we didn't have one and I didn't have one. I felt like I was a great provider because I said, no, you can do whatever you want. I felt like I was great. She, it drove her nuts Yeah, because I, she was, I want parameters. I want to know mm-hmm. if a shirt is too expensive. I want to know. And, and it actually is not a restrictive process. It's freeing because now you know where the out of bounds is. You can and go so you can have a lot of fun in bounds. Yeah, that's true. Do you find this too? I, I don't know. I've talked to, you know, in the media, women always have the reputation as being the free spenders. In most people I actually know, like my friends and so on, the women are the brakes and the guys are the gas pedal. What, what <laughs> well, do you discover? I, well, I, I think, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily gender, it's how they spend money. So for mm-hmm. instance, uh, women primarily are going to be spenders on smaller things 
and more often. And the guys are going to be put on brakes on the small stuff, and they'll go out and spend money on a $20,000 object. Oh, yeah. That's one so of my good So they'll blow it on a forerunner or a four-wheeler or a new gun, or they'll do something huge. And you're like, what in the world? Why are you getting on her about 14 bucks here and 14 bucks there? And you just went out and spent 20 grand. Yeah, I got a good friend. He's like, I don't spend money very often, but when I do, I just go and buy a new boat. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. And it is, it is, it is a problem. And I guess it's, it operates on the spiritual level too, doesn't it, Chris? Because money is an idol. Oh yeah, it definitely is. You know, the way we keep money from becoming an idol in our life is we have to realize whose it is. Mm. It's, it's not ours. And Psalm 24, one says the earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, which means all it contains. That's all of our relationships, our time, that's our energy, that's our leadership, our sphere of influence. That church that we keep calling our church, mm. <laughs> it's his church. Yeah. Um, and if we're not the owners, that means we're the managers. And 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says, those who have been entrusted to be managers must prove faithful. So when we get through this entitlement stage, we're right there like, oh, I work so hard. I work hard for my money. That entitlement can be transferred over to contentment or transferred over to gratitude very quickly if we remember that it's not even ours in the first place. Mm. And so a lot of times we get into our entitlement problems because we really think it's ours. That's, That's a good I really word. Like to, I really like to teach to the belief system, not the action. So it's not about saving. It's about believing the fact that we get to manage the creator's resources. That's a big deal. And that motivates you to save. Hmm. Hmm. So let's talk anything else on personal finance, because I want to switch gears and talk in the last few minutes just about church leadership. And I know the two are related, but anything else you would say to church leaders uh, just by way of practical financial everyday advice? I would just say, you know, start with the budget, obviously, and then you, the power of modeling. When you start doing this for your congregation, you start modeling this in your own life, it's going to come up in conversation, in the lobby, in the hallways, in your meetings, all those decisions that you're making financially, it'll come up. And when it does, it'll trickle throughout your congregation, and you'll find that your entire congregation is now positioned in a better position financially, which will yield higher giving, which will fund the vision. But it yes. all starts with you doing a budget and modeling. We did this thing at our church called Thrive a few years ago. Casey Graham helped us out. And it's basically live with margin, live on mission. And we tried to help. We do this financial learning experience. We just, you know, it's same like Financial Peace University that you guys do. And the whole idea is similar. You got to do something for your people. Because if you're going to ask for something from them, hey, we want you to give generously to the mission, to this project, to a new building, to a new location, whatever that happens to be, they have to have money to be able to do that with. Yeah. And so, and they're often so grateful. We've run hundreds of people through the financial learning experience. They're so thankful because now they can go for dinner and not worry about whether they can pay their credit card balance, right? They can, they can have a vacation. And that was very liberating for me as a leader to be able to say, Hey, I don't want you to just give to the church. I want you to be able to go on a family vacation and pay cash for it. I want you to be able to pay for your kid's education and we will help you. So maybe that's a good segue into church leadership. What are some best practices and worst practices you've seen among churches when it comes to uh, financial stewardship? Well, there's a, you know, the, the same principle that applies in principle in a personal life is applied to the uh, church world as well. And it's planning ahead. And when we think, oh, I've got to raise a million dollars in 18 months, you know, just to throw a figure out there. I know we got people listening from all size churches, but 
you're right. That is nuts. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal. So you have to immediately go into frantic uh, fundraising mode. Um, so you've got to plan ahead. And I think sometimes we do uh, so much. We do just enough strategy and long term planning that we think that we did it. Hmm. Um, so what I'm saying is, I we, oh, in three years, I want to be at uh, this amount. I want to have this many people in, in groups. I want to have this much giving. That's not really long-term planning. You got to put that goal out there, and then you know backtrack and benchmark. Where do we need to be? How are we going to get there? And that's one thing I've learned here at Ramsey Solutions is how little strategic planning I've done in the past. Hmm. That I really should have been a lot better. There's a huge long strat-out process that has to happen where you really break down what does this mean for infrastructure? What does this mean for staffing? What does this mean for IT? What does this mean for HR? What does this mean for budget? What does this mean for revenue? You've got to really back this down per quarter and find out what are our goals per quarter. And so that's one of the biggest things is not planning ahead. Yeah, we just went through a StratOps uh, pr- uh, strategic planning process this fall at Connexus Church, where mm-hmm. I am. And man, that's another level. That's not just goals on the wall. It's like what's happening down the hall, and you've got very specific objectives to hit. That's a, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, okay, if, what you're else? Not, if, you're, if your brain doesn't hurt with your long-term strategy planning, you're not, you're not doing it thorough enough. Your brain should hurt. You should have to really think uh, more than you've, you've had to think in quite a while. That's great. Another thing would be, um, you know, again, I talked about infrastructure, not putting enough money towards infrastructure, putting the money into uh, things that can't be seen like IT, like web, uh, graphic, uh, graphic designing, uh, discipleship. Every conference they go to, everyone asks, what are your biggest weaknesses? Oh, discipleship. Mm. Well, we don't, when you're asking like one part-time hire to uh, lead the discipleship program for a large church, <laughs> yeah. you know that that's a problem. And so we really we're not we're not a lot of things that aren't seen uh, on the weekends. We're not funding um, data entry, accounting systems, HR, staff training, those kind of things. When I look at budgets around the country, those are usually the things that are lacking. That's a mm. that's a. So you've got this huge vision. That's awesome. That's great. And you're actually pulling off some great weekends. But at the same time, your staff is running around with their heads cut off. Yeah. Then you're dealing with uh, lots of transition. People are leaving every six months to 18 months. And uh, then you're having to spend all that energy on the transition, but not on – it's more of just a reactionary leadership instead of proaction, you know, True. proactionary True. leadership. So that would be another big one. Of course, not saving enough. You, you probably knew I would say that, but uh, saving more. No, but that's a good one. You know, we have uh, – about three months revenue in the bank at any given time. That's sort of our, our minimum threshold. Yeah. And I would recommend anywhere from three months to 12 months, depending on uh, the environment, depending on the season of the church, uh, depending on uh, a lot of different variables. But you're going to be amazed if you don't have that and you're listening, uh, how much better you sleep at night. Mm-hmm. When you sleep better at night, you're a better leader. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then you make better decisions. You know, if a tornado's coming and you're like, oh, well, it's not really going to hit our church. It's going to be around our church, but we still need to have church because we need to get those offerings. You start making these really bad decisions where everyone's still <laughs> coming to church and there's a tornado warning because you've got to get the offering. You just got to be really careful that uh, you don't put yourself in that corner. Yeah, that's true, you know, and and I mean, that's a journey for us. That's over $300,000 we want to have in the bank at any given moment. And I mean, that sounds like a lot of money. You know, for some churches, it'll be $3 million you need in the bank. And for others, yeah. it might be 30000 that you need in the bank. But it's quite a bit of money just to, to keep things operating. And then you can build from there. Yeah, I, I mean, I know the wrestle. I know that, you know, folks who get called into ministry aren't bankers. 
They're they're pastors with huge hearts. So they see the money there and they're like, lives touched and marriages restored and families put back together. I totally get it. But you will be better at all those things if you can have a clear mind knowing that you have that security, knowing that you're in a good position. So you would recommend minimum three uh, up to 12 months in the bank? Yeah, and I think, you know, you want to do it for two different reasons. One, it's not just for emergencies. It's also for opportunities. Yeah. And so when that opportunity comes, a lot of times we get this merger opportunity or something happens and it's like, oh my goodness, that's so great. Oh, but we're going to need 500K. Well, you could have it Yeah. Uh, if you had it saved. And and so, um, and I guess that leads me to another thing I was just thinking about that would be another mistake that a lot of churches make is, and I don't say this in a condemning way at all. This is something that I've made these mistakes myself. We take advantage, we do, we take good opportunities instead of just great opportunities. Okay. Um, a lot Say of times the good opportunity comes, we're like, oh, that's, that's, that's a good one. That's a good one. Let's do it. Let's jump all over it. And mm. you do it right a month before the great opportunity comes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I've done that. I've done that even with my speaking schedule where, you know, I end up saying no a lot, but every once in a while I'm like, ah, should I do that or not? Yeah, I'll do it. And then I've, I've actually had to turn down this year one great opportunity because I was previously booked and I thought, ah, gotcha. shouldn't have settled for good. Yeah. 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 Um, another one would be um, that the budget uh, sometimes doesn't reflect the values. So mm. you talk to a leader and they say, man, I just love youth group. I mean, our passions for youth. Uh, the, the next generation, it means everything. And then you go into their budget and you realize they have absolutely nothing slotted for the youth group. Yeah, $14.32. Right, Enjoy, right. guys. So that's, that's another one, too, I, I think. Yeah, and um, you know, a big one with that, Chris, is family ministry because people are like, oh, families, kids, so important. You look at it and they're trying to run it on fumes. $10,000 a year, understaffed, under-resourced. Huge mistake. Meanwhile, weekends are getting, you know, huge dollars. That that can be yeah. a big mistake. Exactly. Um, and then I guess uh, another one would be trying to expand outside of your geographic region or your brand awareness. I, I think uh, folks are trying to do that more and more. Right. And I've only seen a handful of ministries do that well. Hmm. Um, and, and people might see maybe 10 or 15 or 20 of them out do, doing it well. But the reality is that many of those are bleeding financially. Like yeah. it is a really big undertaking to expand outside of your brand awareness. So I would just strongly encourage you know leadership teams that are listening in to think about launching a local pastor there, and maybe and I'm all about church plants and also campuses doing both. Right. I like both. It's not either or, but when it comes to remote areas and far away from your brand. I just strongly lean more towards a church plant model. There's very mm. few models that are doing that well, yeah. uh, maybe a handful or less. Even the mega churches have discovered over time that the further you get away from where that ministry started, the harder it is. Yeah. And there are exceptions to that. Mm-hmm. There's always exceptions to that. Chris, can I ask you about debt on buildings? I, I see a lot of churches, particularly in the U.S., and I mean, they're impressive, they're magnificent. And then I discover that 90% of it's debt long-term debt. Do you have any rule of thumb where you think, hey, I think, because we have that discussion all the time as elders, we generally want to make sure that we're no more than half the value of what we're moving into is financed by debt. Is that a good rule? Like, what is, what is a good rule? Well, I mean, I mean, this is not a popular opinion, but I think you can do ministry debt-free. Uh, right now, 73, right. 73% of churches all have debt. The good news is, is 27% have proven that it can happen without it. Um, mm. And so there's a lot, very large churches out there right now that are completely debt-free. It is possible. 
But what I see with some of those visions is um, in the beginning stages, they were smart and they, they went all the way up to like five or 6,000 people in portable facilities. They didn't go out and buy the building right away. Um, yeah. So, um, but obviously you want that debt ratio as low as possible. So what you were talking about, the 50%, you want to get that as low as possible and you want to work towards paying it off as soon as possible. The reality yeah. is 73% have debt. But the reason why you have debt <laughs> goes all the way back to personal finance. It goes back to the people in the seats. The reason why you have debt is because they're not paying it. They're not paying yeah. ties and revenue. So if we can fix the congregation, the seat problem, it'll take care of everything else. And so I just want to lean everybody away from fundraising and towards people building. I know it takes hmm. longer, but food tastes better in a crock pot than it does in the microwave. I mean, make sure that you are taking your time with these people over 18 to 24 months and teaching them how to give, getting them in a financial position where they can give more. Uh, and they will. And uh, like, for instance, our Financial Peace University uh, research shows over 4 million people have graduated from Financial Peace University. And that's amazing. Uh, they give 2.9% more uh, within 12 months. So if they were given 3%, then they give six. Their mess is getting cleaned up. Their worldview is being changed. And they're going, they were given six, they're given nine. And so a lot of times we're in leadership meetings and we're praying for a man, a 3% increase in giving 5%. What would that do? That'd be amazing. That'd be incredible. But the reality is that research that I just showed you just now, if you were to put your whole church through financial peace university and many churches have done this, you would experience a, like a 40% increase in your offerings when everyone's giving 3% more. So wow. that just gives you an example of what we could do if we were ministering to the masses. And so many times our focus is on donor development on maybe the top 50 givers, the top 100 givers, that moves the needle maybe 2% instead of focusing on the entire congregation and getting in a place where they can give. That's a really good point. And we'll link to Financial Peace University and everything we talked about in the show notes. Chris, anything else you want to share? And tell us a little bit about your podcasts too. And that's plural, not singular. So uh, Yeah, so you can find me on social media at Chris Brown on air uh, on all social platforms. And the two podcasts, one is called the Leadership Momentum Podcast, very similar to this podcast. The whole heartbeat is to resource the church and research leaders and make a digital roundtable for us to talk about best practices. Um, so it's called the Leadership Momentum Podcast. It can be found on iTunes. Then there's the uh, uh, Chris Brown's True Stewardship. It's a Monday through Friday national radio show that we made a podcast as well. That's found on iTunes. The websites for each one of those are stewardship.com and stewardshipcentral.org. Cool. Cool. Well, Chris, this has been great. You've helped a lot of leaders today. I just want to say thanks so much. And it's been great hanging out with you. Oh, thank you. Well, that's super cool, Chris, man. That was so helpful and really great to finally connect. We're going to have to hang out next time I'm in Franklin. And if you don't listen to Chris's podcast, you should do it. He's got a Leadership Momentum podcast that comes out monthly. It's fantastic. You should subscribe to that. And don't miss his Chris Brown's True Stewardship. Okay, that's Chris Brown on air, True Stewardship. All the links are in the show notes. Of course, you can find that stuff on your own as well. Uh, but if you want the show notes for this episode, just go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 67. And as I said, next week we're back. And this time we're going to look at um, church finance and sort of corporate finance and some help finally for some bivocational pastors. And uh, Joe's got some really cool ideas in that area. And I want to come back next year and do like a whole episode on bivocational pastors. So for all of you who are like working a day job, 
and then doing church on the weekend and evenings and in all your spare time. Hey, I salute you. Thank you so much. And to all of you, a very Merry Christmas. I will be praying for your Christmas services. Please pray for ours. We hope to welcome somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 people this week. We are so excited. God writes incredible stories in our church at Christmas. And even in a profoundly unchurched culture like Canada, uh, we just find Christmas is our very best time of year for outreach. And I hope that's true in your community or wherever you are in the world. And uh, we're back next week. We don't take a break. So uh, Joe Sangle's back and then we kick off the new year in style. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast to make sure you don't miss a thing. And I hope that this really did help you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.